Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Okay, well, good morning. My name is Robert Frazier, and I'm one of the elders here at Redemption <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know why that felt so good. I was hoping he was in here to hear it. Because uh, <laughs> he says it a hundred times a Sunday. My name is Jesse Horney, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And what do we think about uh, the fact that I got tasked with preaching on Time Change Sunday? You like it? You think I'm being tested or punished? <laughs> it was to get the people here. Oh, it does mean I'm bottom of the food chain. It means my big brother is the boss of the preaching schedule. <laughs> um, we've spent the last few months, which is crazy, but it really has been a few months, talking about what it means to be in God's family, like what that might look like for us as a gathering of Redemption Hill, um, what that might look like in our micro churches to work together in what we affectionately call the family business, which is to say that if God is our father and Jesus, Jesus is our leader, well, then what does that actually mean <laughs> in our work? So let me ask you something. What would you say is your calling? Let's think about it for a second. Because today, we're going to talk about having a missional purpose, which requires some understanding of what purpose you're called to fulfill. So I really want you to think about it. What is your missional purpose? What is your calling? And then what if I were to tell you that we all actually have the exact same calling? Because someone called to us, and someone continues to call to us, and what does he say? Follow me. That's what Jesus said. Follow me. So that's it. That's your calling. Okay. So we'll see you next week. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> Great job, everybody. Uh, okay. We can't just leave it there because the thing is, I know you've heard that before. You've probably heard it a million times, and it sounds so familiar that it's almost trite. Follow me. This is our calling. It's worn smooth like a stone in our hands. Our calling has lost its edge because we keep repeating these words that we don't actually understand, and then we try to do something. We try to follow Jesus without having any idea what that means in our actual day-to-day sandwich-making, bill-paying, errand-running life. Imagine knowing your calling and your purpose so well that you 
like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, could say to someone, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Have you ever said that to somebody? It's a pretty big thought, right? It's pretty wild to imagine saying, actually saying that to someone, someone that you know. Come imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because it forces us to ask these questions. Well, does my life remind people of Jesus? And is my life worth imitating? This is how Jesus lived on mission. The disciples and his followers were invited to imitate his actions and live like he lived, which very naturally led them into his mission because you couldn't hang out with Jesus for very long before you had to confront whether or not you wanted to keep following him because he was doing some super weird stuff. And he wasn't always appreciated. But the ones who stayed were doing what he did and were imitating his life. But eventually... Jesus left. And then his followers had to figure out what it meant to continue to do what he did and do what he said even after he was gone, which, in case you hadn't noticed, is the exact same situation that we find ourselves in. Jesus told them, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then he left them with this huge task laid before them and before us. But first, he also made this promise. Do you know what the end of that verse says? I will be with you until when? Until the end of the age. Have we come to the end of the age? Are we still here? (laughs) We're still here. We know he's still with us. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor at another church. And he has this idea that I love which is if something is complicated but possible, we can make it happen. So if it's complicated but possible, we can do it. But if something is simple and impossible, only God can make it happen. And that's what we're staring at at the end of Matthew, is this impossible but simple instruction to go and make disciples, to follow Jesus to live this missional purpose. So today we're going to ask, what does that mean for us? So let's ask Jesus. (laughs) We're going to go to Luke chapter 15, verse 1. And I have some slides for this. This is an NLT, Riley Cal version. Okay. Uh, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and, gross, even eating with them. (laughs) So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he'll joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, everybody, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. 
won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call on her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. And in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God, God's angels when even one sinner repents. Okay, so what do you think about when you hear the word mission? <clears throat> you can say it out loud. When I say mission, what comes to mind? What's the picture really quickly in your head? Overseas, totally. If you're, if you're a missionary, you go. Anything different than that for you guys when I say the word mission? The military, going and doing a mission. A task I've been appointed. Yeah, that's actually a really good phrase for that. <coughs> oh, Norm says guilt. Why? need to get to work. <coughs> What's interesting about these parables is that Jesus is using these incredibly narrow examples, one sheep, one coin, to broaden the people's understanding of the mission. He's asking the religious leaders to rethink their beliefs on who deserves their time and their attention. These stories are an invitation to the religious leaders to repent, a challenge to change their thinking and believe something new about what people are worth. And it's an invitation to us, too, to rethink the notorious sinners in our lives and to accept Jesus' challenge that our mission is not to care for ourselves, but to care for the one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and Love your neighbor as yourself. Simple, but impossible without God. And why is it that we, like the Pharisees, bristle at these parables? Like, what bothers us about the idea of leaving 99 sheep to look for one? Part of what seems to bother the Pharisees so much is that Jesus refuses to bow to societal norms, specifically in who he's willing to teach and who he's willing to share a table with. And, wow, are we the same way. It's uncomfortable to spend time with people who live differently than we do. I'm not even just saying, like, diversity and sort of the, the catch-all term at the moment, but I'm just saying, like, people who live differently than you do, who parent differently than you do, who school differently than you do, who have a job that you don't really respect. Those are not the people that we have around our kitchen table normally. Those aren't the people on my living room couch. Our circles tend to reflect the fact that we want to be with people who make our lives easier, not people who make our lives harder. Um, I was, I, there's this book that I really like. Um, it's called, called. <laughs> it's really small. It'd be a great read for you, but I have some quotes from it today. I had to read it for one of my classes, and I underlined most of it. So some of it we're going to see today. Yeah. Um, this one says, in our, if our experience of Christian community. Do you have that one? Okay, that's okay. Um, if our experience of Christian community is simply the sociology we would have anyway, 
apart from Christ, with no evidence that we're called beyond ourselves and into a new community, we have good reason to ask whether we're hearing and following God's call. So if the people that I'm with, <laughs> if this would look the same, if I wasn't following Jesus, then I've got to ask myself if I'm following Jesus's way of life. If my life is filled with relationships that make sense whether I'm following Jesus or not, then my life doesn't really look like Jesus's. And living like this doesn't just keep us away from our missional purpose, it also reinforces what the world thinks about people. Because when my life looks just like everybody else's, what is there to imitate? Who cares? They don't need to imitate me. I'm doing what they're doing. Part of Jesus' following came because he would sit and talk to anyone, and human beings are really intrigued by unlikely relationships, right? Um, like, do you guys watch those videos of unlikely animal friendships? <laughs> you know, there's like a, a dog that's an elephant's best friend, and we're like, what? <laughs> that's so cute. We love that. Or um, remember the Supreme Court justices, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and um, Scalia? Yeah. So they were like complete opposites, right? Ideologically, politically, but they had this really deep and abiding friendship that people were obsessed with because it didn't make any sense to the rest of the world. They would travel together. They'd go on vacations together. Their families were close. But then they'd sit on that Supreme Court bench and not agree really with anything the other one was saying. And we loved that. Look at Snoop and Martha. You know? Come on. It's so weird. We love it. We don't care if Snoop Dogg is friends with another rapper, but Snoop Dogg's friends with Martha Stewart? That's intriguing. We love these stories because they dismantle our disappointment in the fractured landscape of humanity, and they make promises to us about what's possible between people. These are the radical kinds of relationships that Jesus engaged in all throughout his ministry, and these are the unlikely friendships that captivate our friends and family and point them towards the hope of Jesus. Nobody cares if I'm best friends with Amanda. I know, we're the same person. You guys can't even tell us apart sometimes. It's really cute, but it's not that intriguing. We sit at the table together because we do make each other's lives easier. It's intriguing when we have relationships that don't make sense to the outside world. Remember the beginning of Luke 15, the tax collectors and other Notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach, and this is what made the Pharisees and the teachers of the law complain. They didn't like that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. In a connection society, this is another slide from Mark. Um, how did you say it? I kept saying Laberton. Laberton, yeah, it's Mark Laberton. He was the president of the seminary that I go to, he's not anymore, but he says, in a connection society, which is where we tend to hang out, loose connections, we're happier experiencing diversity from a distance than we are in close interdependence. We prefer the idea of proximity to difference more than actually entering into friendship with people unlike us. We love humanity, it's people we don't like. <laughs> 
Is that true? Yeah, we can say really big things. Of course, we love everyone. But sometimes our neighbors kind of suck. <laughs> That's different. So how can we learn to like people? How can we commit to searching the house for just one? Well, it starts with believing that we are beloved and that God searched the house for us. Because when we believe that we're beloved, we have room, this broadening sense, to believe in the belovedness of others. And understanding the belovedness of others is so compelling and so gripping that we can't help but want to light a lamp and search for them. I was trying to imagine a picture of, of what this might feel like, and I was thinking, um, like, you know when you see a kid who made a mistake, it's small or big, and they're just, like, berating themselves for it? Maybe you don't have kids yet, but I bet you've seen this before. And they're just being really mean to themselves. And we ache for the pain that that kid is wearing. It's like this heavy garment of shame. You see it even in the way they're sitting or standing, like it's crushing to them. And we want to act in the moment. None of us would see that kid and not be moved with compassion. We want to tell that kid the truth, that their mistakes don't define them, that no problem is too big if we work together. And most of all, that they're still loved. And that thing in you, that thing that's true, I know you would do it if you knew the kid or not, that's the heart of God in you. That's not something that you conjured up. That's not your personality. That's not even something that you learned from your parents. That ache is the heart of God. You already have it. You don't have to work harder to get it. He gave it to you. It's learning to recognize it and broadening our idea of who that ache is for, that's the work that we have to do. That's the kingdom come. That's us agreeing with God about his mission and wanting in on the work. It's not God pushing us from behind saying, do more, do more. It's us saying, oh my gosh, that heavy garment of shame is on someone that I know. Let me in, Jesus. How can I be part of the work that lifts that off their shoulders? Great. <laughs> but what does it look like? Raise your hand if you have no idea what it means when we talk about microchurches and mission. I know. I feel it. Maybe it kind of gives you heart palpitations every time Robert talks about it a little bit because you're like, I don't know. My small group has lunch together. We don't have a mission. Uh, this is another quote from that book. Authentic discipleship delivers us from a compartmentalized life. So rather than having a life with segments and partitions, like divisions between sacred and secular, personal and public, image and reality, we're called to one whole and integrated life. And this should feel like freedom. Because we're not saying do more when we're asking you to think of a mission piece of your life and microchurch or be more places or help more people. There was just a few wild years that some people actually got to follow Jesus around and be right beside him, but eventually all of those people had to go back home 
and attune their missional purpose to the everyday rhythm of their regular life. And that's where we start too. Instead of looking at my life and saying, I wonder what else God is asking me to do. Today I'm going to invite you to look at your life and say, oh wow, what's God already doing? Because he's not asking you to do more. He's asking you to rethink where you're already at. I'm going to give you a few examples of this, not because I do it perfectly, um, but because I was raised in a family with a very missional purpose mindset. Um, sometimes the phrase I use for us is social entrepreneurs, which in Sam's words are, so you guys just don't want to make money. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> um, so here's a, here's a few ways that I've seen missional purpose work in my life in a really natural way. And it's been through different seasons. One was when, um, when we were all having babies. You know, there's a few years where it's just like somebody was having a baby every other month. And even though there was lots of kids around, uh, we were so lonely. <laughs> it's a really lonely time of life to have little kids. And we um, were raised with this idea of park day where our moms would just go to a park on a Wednesday and nothing. That's it. <laughs> our moms would just go to a park on a Wednesday. And so we decided, okay, well, why don't we just start doing that? Friday park day. We'll just put out the name of the park that we're going to. We'll put it on Facebook. We'll text it to our friends. And we'll just all be at the park together. Sometimes it was just two of us. Sometimes it was 20 different families and 40 different kids. But the power of park day was, guess what? We were already going to the park because you can't be home all day with those kids. You've got to go to the park. It's the only sanctuary sometimes. But instead of going to the park alone, we went to the park together. And it wasn't just the people who looked just like us. And let me tell you, it was not the people who parented like us either. And the power of Park Day was that we were rubbing against each other's parenting and rubbing against the hard parts of ourselves and learning to live in community. We didn't all go to the same church. We weren't all even believers. But as crisis came up in each other's lives, which a lot of it, um, a lot of that tends to happen when you're like a vulnerable young family. There's just a lot happening we who were believers could step in and take care of the people who we knew from the park. It became this little missional church. We didn't mean to. We would, you know, it was just 9.45, and we had lived three lives already that day, and we had to go to a park. But because we committed to each other and we broadened our perspective on what the mission could look like, we learned to take care of each other and to parent together. Um, this is kind of a strange one, but I, maybe a lot of you know this, but Amanda got really sick a few years ago, and man, we, it was really shocking. We were all so young, and to have a friend diagnosed with a, you know, with cancer was 
very overwhelming to us. Like that felt like things our parents needed to take care of, but now we were the parents. <laughs> we had all these kids in this really scary future looming in front of us. But we gathered with this missional purpose of taking care of the Kofeds. They had four little kids, a prognosis that didn't look good. We didn't all go to the same church. We weren't all living the same lives, but we knew that God was asking us to step in and take care of our friends for a season, for a couple years, to raise money, to bring them meals, to take care of their kids, because they were the missional purpose, and their kids were the missional purpose. And God put that so heavy on our hearts that we couldn't not do it. That's missional purpose. Uh, now I have this really weird job where I direct a preschool, which I didn't plan to do. I didn't go to school for education. I don't like administrative work. <laughs> uh, and what has been really amazing about Wonder School, which if you don't know is a ministry under Redemption Hill, it's a preschool that serves about 50 families. There's seven teachers who work there. And we made a decision really early on that this wasn't going to be a Christian preschool. <laughs> We're not going to teach Bible verses. We don't. We don't teach the kids about Jesus. We wanted to see what it would look like if we just acted like the church outside of a church. Some of the teachers aren't even Christians. A lot of the families aren't Christians. But what we've seen God do at Wonder School is that by acting in a way that does not make sense to these people. Like the way that we love them and their kids doesn't make sense to them. When their husbands lose their job and we write them checks from your money, the benevolence fund, that does not make sense to them. They literally say to me, this place doesn't make sense. But now when crisis comes, do you know who they go to? Us, you. Because those unlikely friendships have been so intriguing to them, so compelling to them, that they want the God that we follow. And it's invited them into a community that they've never had before. It's just a preschool. But inside the preschool, the DNA is this missional purpose of seeing these families and these kids and their grandparents and their extended family and anybody who comes into our building as the one lost coin, the one sheep. I train the teachers in that, even the ones who don't follow Jesus. Every kid that comes in that building should be, they should feel your affection like a force. Every parent that comes in that building should feel like our love is an overwhelming force. And they do. This is living a missional purpose. These are things that I was just naturally doing. I already go to the park. Amanda's already my friend. We work at Wonder School. <laughs> I wasn't called to get on a plane and go somewhere else. I wasn't called to go to a, a, a homeless shelter. What God has put on my heart is families. And then he's showed me these places where I already have you, Jesse. That's your mission. 
The way that we imitate Jesus is by only doing what the Father tells us to do. That's it. That's what Jesus said. His mission looked pretty erratic, to be honest. There wasn't like, he knew, he knew he needed to get to Jerusalem. He knew he needed to be crucified. But if you were following him, it would have looked like he didn't have anything planned. He got interrupted all the time. On his way to something, he would casually step into a sermon. On his way to something, he would heal three different people and then tell some weird stories. He would say, you know what, let's go to the other side of the lake. And they'd be like, okay, we were pretty set up on this side of the lake, but I guess we'll go to the other side of the lake. It looked like a mess. But Jesus was listening to the Father and going where the Father asked him to go. And I have a hunch that you're already doing that. You have a job that Jesus called you into. You have a family that Jesus called you to. This is your missional purpose. These are the places where God is asking you to broaden your perspective and to see those people as the one that he's called you to care for. It's really important to remember that we we won't know God's heart and we won't know the Father's voice unless we spend time with the Father, right? Like, even Sam and I have been married 15 years, but it requires so much time still together to know what the other person actually means when they're talking (laughs) or texting. You have to spend time together. And learning to know God's voice also requires growth in intimate community with other believers. It can't be done in isolation. So from those two spaces, time with the Father and time with people that know us and love us, from there we learn where to be and who to serve. And then, here's the crux of it, we go together. The disciples were not called to go alone. Even Jesus, who is God, called people to do it with him. He didn't do the mission alone, even though he was the only one who could do it the right way. He didn't care. He wanted their mistakes. He wanted their blunders. He invited them along. And so we go together too. We hook elbows and we cross that open country looking for the sheep as a family on mission. You tell me there's a lost sheep that you love and then I'll say, show me where to go. Tell me how to help. We'll love the people that you're called to because we love you. And we're going to trust you when you say, this is where God's calling me and I need people to go with me. And we're going to light a lamp beside you and say, yeah, man, let's search this house. We're going to dust every corner together. Because even if it wasn't our coin that we lost, even if it was your coworker that you care so much about, or your kid who's wandered far from Jesus and has a baseball game this week. Your coin has value to us. And we will believe you when you tell us, this is worth so much to me. Will you please help me find it? And the way that our micro churches work, so here's, here's this big thing, right? Like, here's our mission, here's who we're called to, and then we're, We're on this journey experimenting on what it might look like to do that as a microchurch. So that might mean that someone, um, 
Okay. Here's the last quote. <laughs> Vision is hope with commitment and energy. So the way our microchurches work is that someone has a vision. Maybe a few people have a vision. And they're going to share a way that you can follow them as they follow Christ, and you're going to join the mission that God's given them right now. Because we all have a calling, and we all have people that we're supposed to love and go after. But the micro churches come together over a shared mission. Like maybe you all live in the same neighborhood, and you want to take care of the elementary school that most of your kids go to. Simple. You all, all of your kids already go to that school. You probably already love those teachers. You probably already want to take care of the building. So maybe that's your microchurch's mission. We're going to take care of the teachers who are taking care of our kids. Or maybe you want to start praying for the neighbors around your microchurch who don't know Jesus. And then like once a month this summer, you have a barbecue and invite them over. But somebody has to have that vision. Or maybe like our microchurch, a lot of us work for Wonder School. So maybe a lot of you work together or you work in the same industry. So you pray together for your coworkers. And then when one of the coworkers is in crisis or needs help, who do you call? Not Ghostbusters. Your microchurch. Clint says, there's someone at my work that's having a really hard time. She's going through a divorce. Her kid's sick, whatever it is. He tells the people in his microchurch, and they help him take care of her. He says, I'm going to cross this field and look for this sheep, and they say, we will come too. This is a shared missional purpose. Mission requires vision, and most of the time, we don't all need a separate vision. We follow those who do. Vision is hope with commitment and energy. So microchurch is where we combine our commitment and our energy to follow the shared vision of what God's calling us to do in our own context. And if you're lacking vision, ask yourself this. What fills you with hope? And who will join you with shared commitment and energy? Um, Frederick Buchner says, man, I don't know if you've heard this before. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. It is a marriage of the two. Your calling is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger come together. That's where God wants you working. Nowhere else. I'm going to um, invite the band to come back up. We're going to take communion today a little bit different, of course, because we do every week. We can never just do a normal communion <laughs> here. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you to think about where is your open country where you've lost a sheep? Where is your house where you've lost a coin? Which sheep is God bringing to your attention? Which beloved friend or neighbor or not-so-beloved friend or neighbor? Which lost coin just breaks your heart? Who are the neighbors and friends who will help you on the mission? 
And when you call them and say, guess what? I found my sheep are going to come and rejoice with you and have a party with you. Who are those people? We would love at Redemption Hill if we learned to join together in microchurches that looked like that, where we follow each other's vision to take care of the people that God's calling us to take care of, and we rejoice when the victory comes. If we do it alone, we don't get to rejoice together. But if we do it together, we get to share in the work that God has done. And when I'm saying victories, I'm not just saying like, guess who's getting baptized? <laughs> That's a cool victory. But so is uh, taking meals to new moms who don't have a support team. And so is getting groceries for a foster family in your neighborhood. And so is getting supplies to the elementary classrooms that don't have them. It's a victory when our elderly friends and neighbors get to watch out their windows as you and your friends tend to the outside of their house. Those are victories because it's reminding people that unlikely friendships come from an unlikely friendship between us and the God of the whole universe. Those little victories are sharing the good news that you can love those people because Jesus loved you first. And Jesus did both things. He healed people, he fixed things, and he also told people the truth about who they were and who he is. That's our calling, to follow him, to do what he did, and to take care of the sheep that he has compelled us to love and to follow after. When we take communion, I would love if you could take it with your microchurch. And if you look around and you see someone who's not in a microchurch, grab them. So this means you're maybe not going to go back to your regular seat. Maybe a little weird. You're going to have to try to kind of gather together, which might feel a little weird. You might have to take it with some strangers because you're not in a microchurch. Also a little weird. But you know what else is a little weird? That we get to take this bread and this wine and remind ourselves that Jesus came to save us and Jesus came to save everyone. So we're going to take these elements and thank Jesus and remember what he's done for us. And we're going to take it as a micro church, asking God to compel us towards the people that he's calling us to serve. Okay? And if your kids come in, just maybe pull them in. It doesn't matter if they're your kids. Just have them come over and take communion with you, okay? And then I'll come back up at the very end and pray for us. What a privilege to be in a room full of friends who love each other and love our city. May the God of peace pour into you in a way that makes it impossible not to pour out onto the people that you already live with, work with, and love. And may the peace that comes from Redemption Hill be the peace that brings the kingdom to Boise and Meridian and Nampa as it is in heaven. We love you guys. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. 
You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.